0: Well, okay, good morning. Happy Easter. He is risen. Okay, good. You guys, you've been here before. You know what to do. All right, good. I want to start off this morning by talking to you about something that some people might call life change. Some people might call it self-improvement. I just, neither of those terms really nail it for me. I want to talk to you about what I would call transformation. Uh, transformation, I think, is what a lot of people want in their lives. You know, they, they look at their lives and they're not happy with something that they see or many things that they see and they wish that that thing would be gone and the other things would start. And what they really want is transformation. Now, there, the world's going to throw at you a bunch of different paths to transformation. That's where you get like self-help, self-improvement. Uh, take a course on this, do that. You know, tw- you know, ten steps, twelve steps, forty steps, whatever. Uh, because even the world recognizes that transformation is necessary if we're going to grow. For me, transformation has primarily been through experiences that I've had with God. You know, I, I just haven't been disciplined enough as a person to say, all right, I'm just going to buckle down and grit my teeth and make these changes. It's almost always been God does something, and I'm just like, whoa. One of the most significant, meaningful transformations that ever took place in my life, and there's been quite a few, but one of them was becoming a dad. You know, that, it sounds funny to say, that caught me off guard. I knew my wife was pregnant, you know, like I had a nine months to prepare we I knew we were trying to get pregnant, we had actually been pregnant once and had a miscarriage. The idea of being a dad was not foreign; it wasn't a surprise, but the way that it hit me when that first baby was in my arms, that shocked me when when our firstborn Aiden was born, like I said we you know I had a hunch that Kendra was pregnant when we went to the hospital and uh, because she pretty much crushed my hand on the way driving there. But, and I knew, I knew the baby was coming. We had already picked out the name. We'd painted the nursery. We've bought all the stuff. You know, like we, we knew all of this was coming. But then when Aiden was born, the wave of multiple types of emotions wasn't even one. Uh, that, that hit me. You know, there was, I remember in particular several. One of them was this incredible feeling of relief because as I had said, we, we had tried for several years to have a child. We had had a miscarriage and then we couldn't, it seemed like we just couldn't get pregnant after the miscarriage and we just like couldn't get there. So when Aiden was finally born, it was like, whew, we can have kids. We weren't sure that we would ever be able to. So there's this incredible amount of relief there was also all this love that I had for this stranger that couldn't talk to me. He was all nasty, but I loved him. And I was like, where did all this love come from? I didn't even know I was capable of this. And and the same thing happened with, Emma when she was born and Josiah when he was born. I kind of thought that I was all like I had maxed out my love. But then every time another kid comes, like, oh, there's a whole other reservoir of untapped love I didn't even know I had. So my capacity to love grew as each kid was born. There was also, and many of you probably felt this, this feeling of fear. Kind of like, please don't send us home from the hospital with this baby (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what to do. Thankfully, my wife knew what to do, but I was like, uh, you know, when when can he do chores? You know, like, wh- uh, why isn't he talking yet? We've had him for two days. I, I When will he, should I, should he be riding a bike next week? I don't, I don't know how this works. So this fear of just like, I didn't know how to be a parent. I didn't know how to be a dad. Uh, so the fear of that, that led to some feelings of vulnerability and uh, also the sense of responsibility just peaked you know like okay it's time to start making decisions with this little helpless infant in mind you know like uh job decisions financial decisions health decisions uh all sorts of decisions that were made not just with myself in mind or myself and my wife in mind but this kid is reliant on us and so the decisions that we have to make so there's a sense of responsibility well all of that led to just major transformation in my life and that transformation expressed itself in a variety of different ways one of them is i cry way more now that i have kids i don't that seems counterintuitive to me but man when i when our kids were born i i, I just i'll cry at a commercial now you know i'm 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 like a 50 year old woman or something, you know? Like, I'm just like, oh, I can't believe that the drive through of Taco Bell's open till midnight. Oh. Uh, everything is just, all those feelings got woken up. And uh, I cry more easily. The other thing I do is I laugh more easily. I just think things are funnier. I guess I take myself less seriously and I take other people less seriously. I take them less seriously than they take themselves. And so I find things funnier. You know, like, uh, Aiden will hate that I'm telling this story, but I remember one time that Aiden was an infant and he was in his crib and he discovered what was in the back of his diaper and decided to scoop it out and smear it all over the walls. That's hilarious to me. I don't know. Don't tell him I said that. Uh, he's not going to like that. But I, this, this inner transformation expressed itself in more demonstrations of things like uh you know tears and laughter it also led to reorientation of my priorities and the inner world of thoughts and feelings was impacting the outer world of actions and behaviors and i wasn't trying to make it happen it was just happening organically i didn't sit down and say okay jim you'll be 20% more you know sensitive All right, Jim, you will be 80% more responsible. I didn't decide to do these things. They happened. You know what I mean? It was all organic. It was all the response to what had happened in my life by becoming a dad. Well, I share that story because I think that it paints a picture of a little bit of what's happening to the disciples. They're not seeing a child being born, but they're seeing a tomb that should have a person in it, but it's empty. And they are being shocked at that, even though Jesus said, "It's it's funny because just like having a child, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was." They shouldn't have been surprised that the tomb was empty. Jesus said repeatedly, "I'll come back from the grave. I'm going to rebuild this temple, meaning the bo- his body." Like he told them repeatedly that the Messiah would be resurrected. Yet when he was, they're like, "Really?" They weren't prepared for this. They were still caught off guard despite three years of warnings and explanation. The story we're going to read and the the resurrection stories in all four gospels, Abby read it from Luke this morning. I'm going to read it from Matthew. So really quickly, just a little background. Uh, Mark is the first gospel writer to write about the resurrection, but you might notice, well, Mark's not one of the 12 disciples. Where'd Mark come from? Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. So how does he have this, this information? He got it from Peter. Peter was one of the 12 disciples. Mark interviewed Peter. Peter wrote it. Uh, P- Peter said it, Mark wrote it. Matthew got a hold of Mark's and was like, oh, that's good. I'm gonna take Mark's as an outline and I'm gonna add my part of the story because M- Matthew was an eyewitness. Does that make sense? So he used Mark as an outline filled in some gaps. Luke said, I like that idea, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna take Mark's gospel and I'm gonna also go interview Mary. That's how Luke has all the stories of Jesus's infancy and all the, you know, all the Christmas stuff. And so Peter, who gives it to Mark, who is borrowed by Matthew and Luke, and then John's just off doing his own thing. He just, he's like, I was there, I don't need you guys to tell me any of this." So John writes it his own way. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the stories are really similar. John really is hitting it from his own perspective. But the reason I wanted Abby to read it from, one, uh, from Luke, and I'm going to preach it from Matthew, is just so that we can get a couple different perspectives on the resurrection. So this is Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, so this would be Sunday on their calendar, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified." He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, And they came up and took a hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. So just like when I had a child, there was an inner change that resulted in outward transformation. The same takes place with Mary and Mary. Two women, both named Mary. Mary Magdalene, we know she had seven demons in her that Jesus cast out. And then the other Mary is Mary, the mother of James. Neither of these Marys is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary was a pretty common name in the Bible. I think there's at least four women named Mary in the New Testament. Now, this appearance, or maybe I should say lack of appearance of Jesus when they go to the tomb There's a lot in that part of the story alone. So it's Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. They're visiting Jesus's tomb. It seems clear to me from the story that they're eager to do this because they go at the earliest possible moment. This is like Black Friday waiting for the door to open. You know, like they are, it says that they were at the grave by dawn, The first day they could go. They could not go on the Sabbath. Jesus died on a Friday. The Sabbath was Saturday. It was prohibited by their religious law to go do this, so they had to wait. As soon as sun up on Sunday, as soon as the sun rose on Sunday, they were allowed to be there. They were waiting. I mean, if they're at the grave by sunrise and it's outside of the city, when did they get up? A couple hours before sunrise, right? I mean, they're up early. Why? To go take spices to basically prepare Jesus's body because he's dead. And this was just part of their custom. It was uh, just like we would have a funeral and we put someone in their nice clothes, a suit or a dress. They would put spices and uh, herbs and oils and things like that uh, on the person's body just to prepare them for burial or in this case jesus was in a tomb they came at their very first opportunity i think that means they were eager to do that the expectation was to anoint and prepare his body for a proper burial something that to me indicates the historical reality of this story is in this uh, in this culture the testimony of women was basically considered not valid in a court of law. So the fact that Jesus appeared to women is not something that they would have made up if they were trying to fool everyone, right? You wouldn't make up something that's going to hurt your case, right? Craig Keener, who's one of my favorite commentators, says this about This dynamic. He says, the witness of women was considered unreliable in that culture, yet Jesus goes against the culture by revealing himself to women and telling them to bear his message to the other disciples. This detail is definitely not one that ancient Christians would have invented because it did not appeal to their culture. If the early church was just trying to cook up a story, they definitely wouldn't have relied on the first two eyewitnesses to be two women who in their culture were viewed as unreliable. Jesus actually selects these two women, Mary and Mary, and they are the first evangelists of his resurrection. The first people to know that Jesus is raised are these two women. And I'll get into this a little more later, but he tells, uh, the angel says this first and then Jesus says, it's in verse seven and verse 10, now go tell the disciples. Jesus got their information, uh, sorry, the disciples got their information from these two women. And so to me that indicates that this is not a made up story. You wouldn't make up a story that hurts your case in the culture, right? This must, have, must actually be how it happened, They didn't invent this. Now, Mary and Mary, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, respond. There's an inner belief. They they see the tomb is empty. There's an angel, and then later they encounter Jesus, and they respond with this inner belief. And it says uh, in verse 8, they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. Just like when I held my firstborn in my arms, there was multiple emotions. I was scared, relieved, happy. There was also a sense of responsibility. And I was like, how am I feeling all of these things at once? When they see that Jesus is no longer in the tomb, that Jesus has been resurrected, they have both fear and joy. I want to talk about why they have fear and joy. In, in Mark, it says they were trembling and astonished at the same time. Why fear and joy? Well, I think that the fear and the joy are evidence that they really believe Jesus is raised. If they thought that his body was stolen or maybe they were at the wrong tomb, they wouldn't have fear and great joy. They'd have like bewilderment or doubt. But the fact that they have fear and great joy, to me, that indicates they believe that Jesus is actually raised. Why fear and why joy? Well, how would you feel? If if someone that you saw dead was now alive, I would have fear too. I I know that for me the fear would be like, what even is the universe if dead people can come back to life? What is what I've thought about the world even true? Is my world view off? How is it that someone who I watched die is now alive? How is this even possible? How does the universe even work? How much power does this Jesus have? I mean, I thought he had a lot of power. He was making bread out of nowhere and walking on water and stuff like that, but he's alive. I saw him die. I'd be afraid too if I witnessed. I would be like, I don't even know if what I've always thought about the world is even true. My whole worldview is just, this dead, dead man is now alive. I would be afraid too. What does this mean for me? What, what am I supposed to do with this information? Now, I, there, No one's going to believe me. Now I've seen Jesus die and now he's resurrected. I saw him on the road. He spoke to me. I grabbed his feet and worshiped him. What's this mean for me? What, how, what am I supposed to do with my life now? Can I even go back to normal? How do you go back to normal after seeing this, right? Like I can't go back to pre-fatherhood gym now that I've had kids. I, I can't go back to that, right? Well, you, there are certain experiences that you have that you cannot unhave, And I think them seeing resurrected Jesus is one of those experiences. I, my old life, I didn't wake up this morning thinking that would happen, but my old life is now over because now I've seen Jesus raised from the dead. My worldview has been shattered. I, have, I apparently have not understood Jesus's power adequately, and my old life is impossible to go back to because of what I've lived through seeing Jesus raised. They also were full of great joy. Now I think that makes a lot of sense. They loved Jesus. They were heartbroken that he died, and so to see is back from the dead they would be full of joy, right? I mean, they're happy to have their friend back, their savior back, their Lord back. If Jesus has defeated death, what might that mean for them? If Jesus knows how to defeat death, maybe he can help them defeat death. Maybe Jesus can provide power for them so that they can live a life of of victory. They would also be joyful because I guess Jesus is who he said he was. I mean, I kind of forgot, but he did say he was going to come back from the grave. If he did that, he must be the Messiah. He must be God. He must be the Son of God. So they're full of fear and joy. I think that is a good foundation. If you want to know uh, what your emotional default should be as a follower of Jesus, I think it should be joy. Not anxiety. We all have this, these emotional defaults. You know, Some people are just, by default, they're anxious unless you give them a reason not to be anxious. Or by default, they're angry unless they have a reason not to be angry. I think for the Christian... It says in uh, Romans, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 15 that he wanted his disciples to be full of joy. Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. I think joy is supposed to be the default emotion for Christians. What I mean by that is we're joyful unless there's a reason not to be. You, you have to work to move us off of joy. If your heart had a thermostat, it would be set on Joy right does that make sense so like yeah i mean if if a tragedy happens yeah you might not feel joyful because something moved you off of that but your default you wake up in the morning joy you interact with your family joy that's the default emotion i'm not saying it's the only emotion i'm just saying that's where we start from there are going to be circumstances yes there's going to be times for mourning there's going to be times for anger There's going to be times for sadness. There's going to be times for fear, but joy is the default. That's where we start from. Does that make sense? I also think the fear of the Lord should be a default mindset for followers of Jesus. I don't mean fear and that you're anxious and afraid that everything, bad things are always going to happen to you. That's not the type of fear I'm talking about. I'm talking about reverence for God the fear of the Lord. You're not going to grow in wisdom without the fear of the Lord. You're not going to grow in worship. You're not going to grow in prayer. You're not going to grow in obedience to God without the fear of the Lord, without reverence. So Mary and Mary are full of joy and fear. That's the inner belief that they have. They believe that Jesus is resurrected. That results in fear and joy. That inner belief leads to an outer confession. Go to verses 9 and 10. So they've seen the empty tomb. Jesus isn't there. An angel tells them to go tell the disciples. So they're already on a mission. They're they're, they're already missionaries, essentially. While they're on the road, who do they run into? Jesus. It says in verse uh, 9 and 10, Behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and they will see me. So they're on the road. They're about to go tell the disciples Jesus is, he's alive, and they see Jesus. And what do they do? It says in verse nine, they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. So they got down on their hands and knees on a dirty, dusty road, grabbed his feet, and they started to worship him little Bible quiz. What can we deduce? What can we learn about who Jesus was from the fact that they worshipped him? That tells us what about Jesus. It tells us that he's God. They worshipped him. I mean, these Jewish women knew you only worship God. You don't worship men. You don't worship idols. You don't worship things. You don't worship stars. You don't worship none of that. You only worship God, but what did they do? They worshiped him. You following that? It's It's a little nod to the deity or the divinity of Jesus. It's one of about two dozen places in the New Testament where it speaks about Jesus being God. Not just the son of God, although he was the son of God. Not just a good teacher, though he was a good teacher. Not just a prophet, though he was a prophet. But actually God in the flesh In a few weeks, we'll get into that. We will get into that repeatedly. Colossians 1, Philippians 2, Hebrews 1, Revelation 1. We're gonna get into all those things in a few weeks. But the fact that they worship him means they understood, the closest people to Jesus understood Jesus to be God in the flesh. Worship was a common expression of fear in the Bible. You see people in the Bible have this encounter with God and they get terrified, what do they do? Fall down and worship. It's in Daniel, it's in Revelation, it's in Isaiah, and now it's here in Matthew. They see Jesus, they are fearful, and they worship. The worship demonstrates his deity. Since I'm doing okay on time, I want to do a little I want to give you a little practical thing. Okay. If you look up if you look at this passage and you look in the original language at the word for worship, it's proskuneo, and it always means worship. It just, it always does. And one of the uniquely Christian beliefs or doctrines is that Jesus is God. And so when he's worshiped, we see that as, okay, he's God. There are other groups that do not believe, that they call themselves churches, but don't believe Jesus is God. Okay, I, I'm, I, hate, I hate to do this on Easter, but... This is the time where we're talking about the resurrection. You know those folks that show up at your door and knock on the door and they're always better dressed than you? You know who I'm talking about? Okay, Jehovah's Witnesses. They show up and they, you know, it's like, man, it seems like they know the Bible better than me. Look how well dressed they are. Probably never said a bad word in their lives. You know, like so moral, right? And they bring their Bible, Now, I'm always confused. I'm like, well, if if I claim to be a Christian and you claim to be a Christian, why why are we still arguing? This is why we're arguing. All all you have to say is, I worship Jesus just like you. And they'll say, time out. They will say, we don't worship Jesus. And I'll say, but isn't Jesus God? And they'll say, no, he's not God. He's He's the son of God, but he's not God. So I brought with me, I wanna make it clear, I disagree with wholeheartedly and I'm not teaching for or on behalf of the Jehovah's Witnesses. I wanna show you the differences between what the Bible teaches and what they teach. They will pull out their New World Translation. Now before John Eric says, you were preaching for the New World Translation on Sunday, I'm just showing you, this is their translation. They're the only ones that use it. No one else uses it. Every time the Greek word for worship shows up, they translate it, worship, worship, worship. Except when that word is used of Jesus. They use a different word, obeisance, which none of you have ever heard, neither have I. Obeisance means to kneel and to show respect, They literally change the word worship. They have to scrub any reference to Jesus being God out of the New Testament. In John 1, when it says the word was God, they change that. When it says that they worshiped God, or worshiped Jesus, they change that. So I know this matters because a lot of people are like what's the difference we're all the same can't we all just get along well we're actually not the same we differ on the most important thing who is god jesus and so i'd hate to turn this into like a really nerdy teaching moment and you know make anyone feel bad but that's why this matters it seems subtle but it's really not because ultimately they're trying to convince you not to worship Jesus. Does that make sense? That's a problem. They're trying subtly, ever so subtly, hey, you see Jesus up here, take it down here. And, and I'm just gonna always err on Jesus too high. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't think we can lift him up high enough. We're never gonna err by exalting Jesus. But when it's the diminishing, the taking down of Jesus. So again, and I don't mean to turn this into a a lecture here, but that is where we differ with Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, uh, Muslims, and many other groups. It really centers around Jesus. I know we agree on Moses, guys, but Moses isn't Lord. I know we agree on Daniel, but Daniel's not the Savior. We disagree on the main guy. And because of that, we're distinct. I still love you. I need to get one of those ties of yours, but but, but I, I don't need your theology. Does that make sense? So it, I know it sounds minuscule, but it's you know it's not minuscule. It's it's you know it's like mistaking your wife at the grocery store. Like oh oh someone actually did this to me. Someone. Uh, I was at a church a couple weeks ago and I had a mask on and they came up and spoke to me and halfway, this woman was talking to me and she goes, you're not my husband. I'm like, yeah, I'm not. You know, like, oh, honest mistake, but not really. I mean, that's kind of a big mistake, right? Yeah, I'm a guy, he's a guy. Oh, we're all the same. No, that's an identity crisis. Well, when you do that with Jesus, oh, yeah, well, we believe in Moses. We believe in the. If you get Jesus wrong, you get all of Christianity wrong. It's named after him. He's the central figure. Okay. Well, that only took five minutes, so that's not bad. All right. Now, Jesus and the angel both send Mary and Mary to go proclaim that Jesus is resurrected. In verse seven, the angel says to them, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. In verse 10, Jesus says to them, don't be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren and leave for Galilee and there they will see me. So twice now, Mary and Mary have been essentially commissioned to go take the word of Jesus' resurrection to others. First to the disciple. well, actually both times to the disciples. So this whole experience starts with this inner belief. Why do they have fear and great joy? Because they actually believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. What does it result in? An outer confession. That their inner belief spills out of their mouths and they begin to proclaim or confess that Jesus is Lord. What does it mean to confess Jesus is Lord? Does that mean worship or evangelism? It's both. Did they worship or did they evangelize? Both. Both. Right, that the, when they fell down before Jesus' feet and worshipped him, that's his, in a sense that's them proclaiming Jesus as Lord. But then they took it and shared it with other people. Right? There's a there's a lot of similarities between worship and evangelism. Now, when Paul writes Romans, he summarizes what happens with Mary and Mary. And I don't know that maybe he meant to do this. Of course, it's inspired. So certainly the Holy Spirit was behind this but it says in Romans 10 9 I just want you to think of Mary and Mary here if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved Mary and Mary are a perfect picture to us their response to Jesus is a perfect picture of a to us of what it means to be saved they're full of fear and great joy. Why? Because they believed in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And what did they do as a result? They confessed with their mouth, both to Jesus and to others, that he was Lord. And they're saved. If you ever, you know, people often will say, what, what is the nature of salvation? What does it mean to be saved? What does it take to be saved? Paul summarizes in one verse the entire experience of Mary and Mary. Belief in their heart and confession with their mouth an inward transformation that results in an outward action. And it's not because they took a class, it's not because they had to check a box off, it just organically spilled out of them. The inner belief led to an outer confession. When it says in Romans 10, 9, to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, belief is not blind faith. Belief is not... I believe something despite the circumstances or despite the evidence because, guys, there actually is incredible evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Um, belief is the hope-filled response to the evidence. Every time we act like faith is like, I believe no matter, what, that no matter what I see, I think that means our focus is on the circumstances. I believe because of what I see in God, not despite what I see in the circumstances, because I've always seen God to be faithful. I've always seen God to be present. I'm not saying I actually have been this perfect and mature in my faith. I'm saying a hypothetical Christian would say, I've always seen God as faithful. I've always seen God as good. I've always seen God as present. Therefore, I believe because of that evidence, not despite this evidence. Do you understand? Let's not make faith, I'm just gonna believe no matter what. Uh, no matter what junk is going on faith is i believe because of this what i've always seen what god has always been if you're just reacting to your circumstances that's still it's earthbound our eyes are on the circumstances of what's going on around us I, this is a little corny and since i'm still doing good on time You know, this week uh, was April Fool's Day and I worked, like I thought about a good prank, I just couldn't get a good April Fool's prank because I feel like most of them will get you fired these days. So I didn't do one, but I did look at, this is a corny pastor joke thing. It says in, uh, I looked at the April Fool's joke, April Fool's Day is also National Atheist Day. It says in, that's a joke. No, I'm just kidding, Linda. It's not really, but in, in, uh, in Proverbs 14, one, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The most important part of that verse, I think, is the fact that it says the fool says in his heart. It's not a conclusion that you come to based on evidence in your mind. It's a rebellious conclusion you come to in your heart because you don't want it to be true. Where does atheism take place? In the heart. But Romans 10.9 says that belief also takes place in the heart. It's the heart. The heart is the believing uh, organ. It's, it's where trust takes place. I'm not talking about your literal heart, but the, you know, your soul, your, the, the core of you. Your, I would almost call it your gut. It takes, belief and doubt both take place in the heart. Mary and Mary believed in their hearts that God had raised Jesus from the dead and they worshiped him as Lord and proclaimed him to others as Lord. Sometimes when we disciple people, we try to get them to do the outward stuff but haven't led them into the inward experience. They're not full of fear and great joy, maybe because they haven't truly believed. We try to force them out to go, raise your hands and worship. Go share the gospel with people. And the inner thing hasn't happened yet. And so we're just trying to force, it's like telling someone grow your hair an inch right now. You can't, you can't just make it, you know, like it, it, it's organic. It happens on its own, whether you try to do it or not. And what we really need to look at is if people aren't, doing the outward stuff, have they experienced the inward change yet? If they haven't experienced the inward change, that's where our attention needs to be, leading them into an encounter with God. uh, I'm going to wrap up here in a moment. I I mentioned this last week at the 11 o'clock service. I don't think I mentioned it at the 9 o'clock service, but I listened to a conversation a few weeks ago Between two people, this was a podcast I listened to, between two people, one of them is a Christian. The other person is not a Christian, but he seems really interested. And there's a Christian and the other person says, I don't believe in God, but I live as if there is a God. Which I think, frankly, is where a lot of our, it's where a lot of people that sit in churches actually are. I don't believe in God, so to speak, but I'm gonna act like there's a God just in case because I think it's a good way to live. I'm gonna talk about this in two weeks because we're gonna spend, in two weeks, we're gonna do the resurrection again. And I'll talk about it in greater detail. But the man who's not a follower of Jesus, he's not a Christian, but he's like, I still am gonna live as if there is a God. He asked this question. If Christianity is true, why are so many Christians untransformed by that truth? And he kind of went on to say, if they really believe that Jesus came back from the grave, why are they always so sour? Why are they always in such a bad mood? Why, do they, why is there so much secret sin? Why are there so many people in churches you know, that are hypocritical? If If it's true what the Bible says... Why are they not changed? Why are they not transformed? And I think that's a valid question. And I think the answer to that question is perhaps we don't believe. Because it's hard for me to think you could believe truly that Jesus rose from the dead and then be unchanged by that and go on and live just a you know empty life. He went on through tears after asking that question. And I mentioned this last week, the eleven o'clock service. He said this through through tears. I still don't even know what to make of Jesus. Partly because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen if you fully believed in Jesus. This is an unbeliever. I think explaining Christianity better than a lot of believers. If Jesus, I've read these gospels. If if this is true, it's terrifying. What? Because it means all of my self sufficiency is nothing. All of my good deeds are filthy, dirty rags. My power is, is, I'm dependent on someone else to save me. It's it's a terrifying thing. There's There's a God whose eyes. Face shines like the sun, eyes burn like fire, a sword comes out of his mouth. He's gonna judge me someday. He is right, it is terrifying. And then he says, I don't even know what would happen if you fully believed it, because he has this expectation that if you believe in Jesus, it's gonna result in change. I think that's the correct expectation. The the reason this man has not followed Jesus yet is this, he's counting the cost, he knows that if he's gonna follow Jesus, he is not gonna be able to just live his life the way he always has. He knows that if he actually is gonna believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, it's going to cost him. It's going to mean turning, his life is gonna be turned upside down. He might even be mocked for it. He might lose a job, he might lose income, he might lose reputation. It's gonna cost him. He's counting the cost. I, I appreciate that. In the honesty and the transparency here. I don't, he said, I don't even know what would happen to a person if you fully believed it. And so uh, I, I think about that and I think, maybe it's possible that we don't fully believe yet. Romans 10, 9, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, maybe we don't, haven't all gotten there yet. Maybe we're not all... haven't all gotten to the point where our faith is all the way there. Like we just see the resurrection as, yeah, it's one of those things in Christianity rather than the center point of Christianity. Kind of like, oh yeah, there's like, uh, I don't know, like the 10 commandments and the Red Sea and uh, crucifixion and uh, there's a virgin birth and uh, Jesus can come back on a horse. And we just like it's a collection of strange ideas rather than a united story centered around Jesus bringing humanity and God back together on the cross. As I said earlier, if you get Jesus wrong, you get all of Christianity wrong. If you get the crucifixion wrong, you get all of Christianity wrong. If you get the resurrection wrong, you get all of Christianity wrong. These are central, these are core you have to believe that these things actually happen. They are not myths. They're not fables. They're not fairy tales. They happen just like September 11th happened. Just like the coronavirus happened, the crucifixion and the resurrection actually happened. I believe that if you'll dig into this, you'll find there's plenty of evidence. I mean, it's, I'm not gonna get into it today. In two weeks, I'll get into it more. Plenty of evidence that these things actually happened in history. Part of the evidence now, 2,000 years later, is you. Your changed life, the transformation you experience is part of the evidence that the resurrection of Jesus is real. Let me ask the worship team to come up on stage and uh, in two weeks, we're gonna look at the resurrection again. Today marks the end of the sub-series Jesus Manifested in the Gospels, and in two weeks we'll start the rest of the New Testament epistles. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul explains the resurrection. So now it's not just a story, it's Paul explaining what it means. We're going to look at the power of the resurrection to transform us, what it means for us, what Jesus accomplished, the way Paul explained it out for them, the, the implications of the resurrection. But this morning, I would like us to get to the point where our hearts fully believe in the resurrection. That we fully believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. That it's not just, a, you know, like we believe in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny, but we believe in it the way we believe that, like, the sun comes up in the morning and the way that water is wet. It's a fact. So, if you wouldn't mind standing with me, I'm going to pray. I heard Susan utter a prayer under her mask. Help us, Lord, to believe this. That's what I want to pray. Jesus, faith is a gift that you give us. It's almost like there's a switch in our hearts that we can't find because we're in the dark. You know where it is. You can flip it on. Jesus, I ask that as we sing, you would flip that switch on for us. Lord, we stumble around in darkness not knowing even how to believe. It's a gift that you give us. You inject faith into us, God. You give revelation. You you go ahead of us and make a way for us to respond to you, Jesus. So I pray, Lord, give us faith. Give us the gift of faith to know in our hearts and to respond with hope and with joy to the news of the resurrection, Jesus. I ask that in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com